Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 178. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Lee's Comics. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by popoptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay. And search for Lee's Comics Inc. That's L E E S C O M I C S I N C period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order and you'll receive a free bonus gift. You remember them from your childhood. Half for the Friendly Ghost, Richie Ridge, Hot Stuff, Baby Huey, Sad Sack, and Little Audrey. You read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies. Now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions, The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and The Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook version. Order your copies today. Long title Looking for the Good Times Examining the Monkey Song One by One by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song, and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Christmas, Christmas time is here, and Alvin and the Chipmunks are here again. In 1958, a down on his songwriter with an unlikely name of Ross Bagdasarian plunged the last of his family savings on a multi-speed tape recorded and created The Witch Doctor and Alvin and the Chipmunks. This changed the fortune for his family, his record label, and animated cartoon studio. Alvin! The story of Ross Bagdasarian, Liberty Records, Format Films, and The Alvin Show by Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions is available from Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copy today. As the pandemic is now lifting somewhat, I am making more personal appearances at shows in Oregon and California. Check my Facebook page as to where I might be next, usually working with Lee's Comics. I'm getting closer to finishing my Mad my Turtles books. 
another monkey's book is on the horizon, as well as a book about TV animation studios. And look for more articles from me in Back Issue, Alter Ego, and Hogan's Alley, and various guest appearances on other podcasts, including those by Ed Rising, Hudson Ranney, Dennis Ball, Phil Hall, and others. My Pac-Man book is my latest release, coming out this month of September 2022. Look for my Disney book and my Warren Kremer book coming soon. On today's show, we have a man who is an author, TV and film producer, writer, director, and journalist. His latest book is about the actor Lawrence Tierney, and he is currently at work on a book about Shemp Howard of the Three Stooges. Here he is, Bert Kearns. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and this is another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast. And today on the show, I have an author, and he's done a lot of other stuff, uh, but uh, his name is Bert Kearns. Uh, we're going to be talking about his latest book about Lawrence Tierney, but he's written other books that I actually enjoyed or loved or wish I had, and we'll find out more about that. So how are you today, Bert? Very good. Very good, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, um, I guess, uh, let me just say, ask you, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I don't know what you were trying to get into in your life because you've worked on TV shows, you've worked on movies, uh, you, you're writing books. So what was your uh, goal in life? <laughs> just <laughs> always, always, always trying to pay the rent. I um, started out uh, a kid from the, the suburbs in Connecticut, Connecticut suburbs, grew up in the 1960s. You know, my heroes were the Beatles, Jerry Lewis and Soupy Sales. Um, wanted to grow up and be one of the Beatles, of course, right? Well, no, I couldn't do that. I became a, a, a reporter for local newspapers in Connecticut in the late 1970s as a newspaper editor, then moved to New York City, hoping to get a job on the Village Voice. Thank God I didn't get a job on the Village Voice. I wound up getting hired at uh, Channel 5 News, the, the 10 o'clock news, WNEW TV. And I worked on the assignment desk there, became a, a producer, news writer, went over and spent five years at NBC, at um, News 4 New York, at Rockefeller Center. And then in 1989, I was kidnapped by a group of Australians. These were, these were Rupert Murdoch's people from Sydney, Australia, who ran his newspaper empire, who came over and took over Metro Media News, which was the place I used to work, Old Channel 5, and they turned it into Fox. And they said, you got to meet these guys. You'll love these guys. They're, they're crazy. They're great. They do all kinds of crazy things. Um, I said, cool. I met them. And they were terrific. They were, they were real newsmen. They were out to do any kind of crazy story that there was. And I was hired on as the first managing editor of a show called A Current Affair. Um, mm. So I was at A Current Affair for a couple of years. We got kicked out of A Current Affair. Wound up taking over a show called Hard Copy in Hollywood at, on, on the Paramount lot. And I stayed out here. I've been, I've been in Los Angeles ever since. Done a lot of work on documentaries, done a lot of work on, um, re, not, I won't call them reality shows, nonfiction shows. Things like, you know, Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura. Uh, Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan questions everything. I think that lasted a few episodes. I was a consultant on that and other shows. But yeah, so I've been out here. I've been writing, I've been working. Um, I wrote a book. 21 years ago, 22 years ago, called Tabloid Baby, which was about my experiences in tabloid television working with Murdoch's people. And it was all about the laws we broke and the crazy stories that we, that we, that we broke, et cetera. Um, I went into hiding for about two years after that because I found <laughs> out that the people who 
you know, spend their careers making other people's lives miserable, really don't like it when you write about them. And so I found out who my friends were, got, got some other jobs through that. Um, and then I wrote my second book 20 years later with uh, my friend Jeff Abraham, who's a, a big publicist out here, a great guy. And we wrote a book called The Show Won't Go On about performers who died on stage. Mm -hmm. ha, let me stop talking for a second. Yeah. Okay. So um, I guess we could stop there as, uh, and then go into the, your other books. But sure. Show Won't Go On was the one that I heard. And I think you were on, if I remember correctly, Gilbert Gottfried's uh, Great Colossal Podcast or whatever it's called. And I we think that's Gilbert's where. Podcast, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was planning to buy the book anyway, but of course that sold me. And it's like, what? caused you to do a book like that was it mainly because of your previous experience doing tabloid journalism that you knew about certain situations where various people died in doing their job basically of acting well really it came about because jeff had this idea he had he'd, he'd gone to uh, an elvis tribute show in Palm Springs at the at the Trump 29 casino. So you can blame Donald Trump, as Jeff always <laughs> likes to say. Um, and there was a guy there who he was he was the famous person who you'd hear him say, Elvis has left the building at the end of an Elvis show. So he got the gig to to be that person uh, at the tribute concerts. So they had the Elvis impersonator came out, and then this guy came out and said, "Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building." Everybody cheered, and they and he signed autographs. Out, uh, out, out in the lobby. And Jeff met him and said, uh, and he heard people say, you ought to write a book. You ought to write a story about your life. And the guy said, ah, I have time. Don't worry. I'll, I'll write it some day. And then he got in his car to drive home to Las Vegas and was killed in an accident on the way back. <laughs> so Jeff had this in his head going, there's, there's a book out there on people who died on the way to a show. Leonard Skinner, people who died on the way home from a show, you know, Jim Croce, people who died on stage. He came, he stopped over the house one day and he mentioned it. And I said, well, let's, let's start doing research. Why not? I have some time. Let's do it. So we started doing the research. Because uh, I like to do research. Jeff does. We both like to, to, to dig into that kind of stuff. We got to over a thousand cases and said, you know what? Maybe we can narrow it down to just people who died on stage. Yeah. Still, there were more than 400, maybe 500 cases of people who died on stage. This goes back to, you know, this goes back hundreds of years, but many were, were current. Um, so we wrote the book and then we got a, a deal to write the book on, um, the top hundred. Uh, then they decided we'll make it 50 or whatever. So we, <laughs> and in the end, there were about a hundred, about 150 cases in the book. Mm -hmm. The only problem we had was that people kept dying on stage and we yeah. have to kept calling the publisher. We got to add this. We have to add this guy. You know, yeah. there's a comedian named Ian, his name is Ian Cognito. Uh, and he's on, he's on stage in the UK and he says, Imagine if I had a stroke and I woke up and I began speaking Welsh mm -hmm. and he puts his head down, he's dead. Wow. And of course we found you know, the worst thing you can do is die on stage and be a comedian because everybody thinks it's part of the show. Nobody right. thinks that it's for real. We found that a lot. Um, so yeah, so we did that and uh, we still keep track. We have a, a, a website called the show won't go on.com and we keep track of people who continue to die on stage. There was, there was someone who died just a week and a half ago in Sacramento, a harmonica player. Hmm. He, he was doing his, doing his show, put his head down on, his, on his, his chin down, and he went on stage. Was there 
is there a chance of a sequel book or anything because you're finding so many and there's so much maybe left out of the initial book? Well, yes. Yeah, so as a matter of fact, we, ha we had to really narrow it down because we had people who died on, on camera, on movie sets, in te television studios. So we, had, so we do have that sequel, the, the book of you know, people who died on movie sets and on camera because mm -hmm. we just had too many. Um, we also had to come up with like some rules. It was mm -hmm. like, okay, you can collapse on stage, but then you have to like go to the hospital. You know, you can die in the hospital, but it has to be you know, related to falling on the stage. You, you can't die really backstage. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, the, the great trumpet player, Lee Morgan, the jazz trumpeter, was performing at a place called Slug Saloon in the East Village about 1972. It was yep. very late at night. They were going for the third set or so. His band was on stage waiting for him. They'd started. He walked toward the stage. His common law wife came in the door and shot him in the back and killed him. Yep. Missed it by that much. <laughs> almost. Got on, almost. Got on Excuse me. No, he, he didn't make it. No. <laughs> well, the most notorious one I knew before I ever saw the book was probably Dick Sean, you know, the comedian, yeah. you know, it's like, and everybody thought it was part of the act. So it's like, I don't know how much time elapsed before they figured it out, but uh... well, you know that that was a very sad story because part of it is that Dick Sean was people don't really know Dick Sean beyond I guess the producers maybe it's a mad 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 world but he was this sort of precursor to Andy Kaufman and people like that he was a far out comedian yeah. and he had this this show called the second greatest entertainer in the whole wide world which he had been he'd been playing around he'd done hundreds of performances of it and he was adapting it for a show at the Kennedy Center uh, in Washington, D.C. So he was in San Diego at the, uh, the university down there in the auditorium. And he did what he usually does in a show, which was the stage would be covered with like bricks and newspaper, et cetera. And the audience would file in and it might take 20 minutes and everything. And then the lights would go down and he would rise up from the, the newspapers and, and, the, and, the, and the rubbish on the stage. He'd been lying there the entire time. Nobody knew it. Mm -hmm. And he also, during the intermission, would collapse on stage and lay there or go, I'm going to take a nap and lay down on the stage. So he told the stage managers and they told all the, all the, the grips and everything, should he fall on, on the stage? It's part of the act. Um, you know, the sad part was his son was the stage manager at the time. And his son was at the back of the back of the theater with the headsets on communicating with, with the stage hands and Dick Sean doing his usual improvisation said okay let's do this let's pretend that there's a nuclear war outside <laughs> and the only survivors are the people in this theater and i am your leader face planted onto the stage mm. <laughs> look that's got a few jokes people are laughing and then looking around it gets a little bit uncomfortable people are saying take his wallet dick sean's <laughs> son at the back of the, at the theater says wait, wait a minute your dad doesn't usually fall like that. And he that was a pretty big header. I guess on gets on the microphone. You go on, check. The stage hand walks out, checks on him, gets some more laughs, walks off the stage. Um, nothing happens. And he says, What, what happened? He goes, well, What did he say? What did he? He goes, I don't know. He wasn't breathing. It's like, what? The hmm. sun runs the stage. As it turned out, this theater, this university had a teaching hospital right next door. And the place was full of the, the audience was full of, of doctors. So they immediately went up on the stage and tried to save him and couldn't. And while the rescue efforts were going on, audience members were walking up to the side of the stage and saying, can we get a refund? Oh. Because he didn't, he didn't give us an entire show. Jeez, wow. Comedy is not funny. <laughs>
Yeah. Um, another one I know about, I don't remember if it was in the book. I don't, Vince Guaraldi, that wasn't really on stage. That was after the performance, if I remember. Yes, it's not, not on stage. Yeah. So yeah. it didn't make the book. I didn't remember it. Sorry, there, sorry, but yeah, I, it was, <laughs> I know it was after a performance. So yeah, I'm just trying to think of other ones. Uh, um, but, well, the greatest yeah. one, the greatest one that we had is one that people all remember seeing. Everybody remembers seeing it. Uh, it this was the talk show guest who died on the Dick Cavett show. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, go uh, ahead. <laughs> um, Jeff was very is very good friends with with the person who runs Dick Cavett's production company, and he said to us, "Look, if if you sell this book, I'll let you watch the video. You'll see the video." Because actually what happened was, you know, Dick, we, we spoke to Dick Cavett and he said, maybe once a month, someone comes up to him and says, I'll never forget seeing that guy die in your show. Air. No. <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, why were you in the audience? It never aired. Yeah. You know, and I think that the reason was that um, the guest who was being interviewed at the time, what happened? This was, and, and Dick Cavett said, this is something from the gods, was, was a longevity expert and a health food nut who... Mm -hmm who had already you know, been on the stage, was, he was very funny, talking about you know, crazy things like leaving sugar out of your diet and crazy things like saying raw vegetables are good. You know, in 1971, that was like, well, this guy's a nut. Yeah. And so he was <laughs> espousing all this, these health food theories and longevity theories. Um, on the, on the, the next, after the break, um, Pete Hamill, the, the New York Post reporter and writer came out and he was talking about some political some strikes that were going on in new york city at the time and while he's being interviewed by by cavett there's a snoring sound from mm -hmm. from from, from um, sorry from the this gentleman who died um as the, the way the, the 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 myth goes dick cavett leaned over and said excuse me doctor are, are we boring you <laughs> and that's been written and that's been said and that's people remember that we got to watch the tape and nothing like that happened at all mm. you know dick cavett is is talking to pete hamill we hear the noise both men look unbelievably like something's wrong here and dick cavett immediately gets up and he looks up and he's about to say the one thing that would get a laugh so he couldn't say it and he catches himself mm. is there a doctor in the house and yeah. he didn't say that. He said, is there a, is, is there a doctor? Is, is there somebody knows is there a doctor? They brought the guy over. They had an oxygen tank that wasn't filled, a defibrillator that wasn't plugged in. And the person, he, he died there on, on the stage there. But, you know, an amazing story. Mm -hmm. So everybody says they've seen it. So what did air that night? Did they just hear a rerun? They aired a rerun that night. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. I have to check the book to tell you what the rerun was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ran, um, ran a rerun. Yeah. Because I, I think but Pete Hamill wrote about it in his column. And because while this was going on, he sat back and started taking notes. And mm -hmm. so the next day he wrote very explicitly about what happened in his column. And then uh, of course, Dick Cavett spoke about it uh, when he came back on the air again, a couple of days yeah. later. So they were able to, uh, so people you know heard it. it. It became part of, you know, pop culture and people believe they saw it. Yeah, it's funny. Um, so the next book after that is your current one, the Lawrence Tierney one, or did you do another one before that? No, the current one is is Lawrence Tierney, Hollywood's real life tough guy. Okay, so you did. This is your next book after the show won't go on. Yes. Or, the, okay. The Tierney Very book good. is it's okay. available now. You know, for pre order, it's coming out in November. Mm -hmm. And and yeah. the Tierney book was really like my, it, it was my uh, pandemic book. <laughs> really 
I really oh, started tough. to research back in, I guess it was 2020 March, when end of March, beginning of April, when all this happened. And suddenly, you know, we have the lockdown and I'm home. And I sat down and, and really, you know, got, I had begun the research a bit, but then really got into the research of the story. People say, who's Lawrence Tierney? Mm-hmm. A lot of publishers said, who's Lawrence Tierney? People <laughs> agent said, who's Lawrence Tierney? Lawrence Tierney was a very handsome, tough guy, Irish actor from Brooklyn, worked in Irish theater, was brought out to Hollywood on, with a contract with RKO Pictures, came out to Hollywood in 1943. They wasted him on a lot of movies and small roles here and there. Uh, he heard that there was a, a, a film being made on what was known as Poverty Row, which was the independent, low-budget um, producers, uh, all centered in one little part of uh, Hollywood Boulevard. He walked over and got himself the role as John Dillinger, the gangster John, John Dillinger. The movie came out. He became a star literally overnight. The, the, the movie sold out in Times Square, the theater there. It sold out around the world. It caused a frenzy everywhere of... They blamed crime waves on it. They banned the movie. And <laughs> Lawrence Tierney was suddenly John Dillinger. About two weeks after the movie came out, didn't make the papers. He was arrested for being drunk. <laughs> About a week later, he was arrested again. Two weeks later, he was arrested again for being drunk and fighting. <laughs> Lawrence Tierney, as, as, as I say, it, his career lasted more than 50 years. Okay. He made more than 60 films, appeared on more than 30 television series, and was arrested more than 70 times. Uh, the, the guy basically ruined his career by about 1953, couldn't get any work, got some work here and there, kept making comebacks. Yep. Uh, he, went, he went to Europe and, and through most of the 60s and worked in Europe and European films. Um, and then in the night, by the 1970s, he was, uh, he was a construction worker and he was driving a handsome cab in Central Park. Hmm. By about 1977, he started coming back, making movies again. And they always wanted to hire him. But, but hmm. by now, he was no longer the handsome, dashing guy. He was a guy whose his, his looks were ruined by alcoholism. He was bald. He was stocky. He had a gravelly voice. <laughs> and he, he did a, a scene in the movie Arthur with, hmm. with Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli. It was the big scene where... Arthur, who's the drunk, not Lawrence Tierney this time, is trying to propose to Liza Minnelli. She's the waitress at the diner. And Lawrence Tierney is the guy next to, next to him, keeps interrupting, saying, where's my role? I ordered a role. And they both run, shut up, you eat your role. Um, <laughs> got some laughs from that. And he, re, he rebuilt his career. Oh, you know, this unbelievable you know, second career that he had in Hollywood. He, he was in Pritzi's Honor. Mm-hmm. He appeared on every television show from Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, to Seinfeld, which is an interesting story <laughs> unto itself, what happened to the Seinfeld, mm-hmm. uh, Hunter, Remington Steele. He had a role in Hill Street Blues mm-hmm. and wound up, he, he did the last scene, had the last words in the final season, in the final episode of Hill Street Blues. Mm-hmm. But of course, everybody knows him from Reservoir Dogs. Everybody yep. believes that Tarantino um, rediscovered him in Reservoir Dogs. That's really where he you know, had his, his peak in his, in his second act. So that was, that was, that was my, my um, pandemic job, really just studying that. It happened actually when I was originally doing research with Jeff on the show won't go on. I found a little article and it said, Lawrence Tierney arrested for the 13th time. And this was from like 1950. 
And I was like, mm -hmm. for the 13th time, what? and I looked at it and I said, whoa. And I said, wait a minute, I met, I drank with this guy one night. I met him once back in, in about 1992 at a place called the Formosa. It's an old, one of these old Hollywood cafes on Santa Monica Boulevard. And mm -hmm. uh, it was after Reservoir Dogs. And I remember he met, shook my hand. How are you doing? I'm Larry. We drank, <laughs> he was no fights. He was very, very polite. Very, very well behaved. And so I got into the story and um, found out that it was, you know, an incredible story of, you know, it's very tragic. So he was a very great actor. Uh, it's a story of how alcoholism and mental illness was treated from the 1940s on, on through, through the 1990s, how that changed um, and how Hollywood treated it, how the gossip columnists found it very, found him to be very entertaining. And, all, you know, and in some points, they kind of egged him on. And, you know, and how people said, this guy, he thinks he's Dillinger. That's who he, that's his problem. He thinks that he's the character Dillinger. <laughs> and if only he was strong and not so weak, he could stop drinking. You know, hmm. and then he would he'd go to court for beating up policemen. And he'd be standing there in court and he'd be bloodied. And the judge would say, well, Mr. Tierney, I could be sending you away for several years. But do you promise not to ever drink again? Yes, Your Honor, I'll never <laughs> drink again. Okay. $25 fine. And this has happened over and over again. Uh, so now, the, you actually met him. Yeah. You said, um, did he have some sort of charisma that kind of allowed for him to just be a repeat offender and kind of get off basically almost scot free? I mean, yes. Yes. Know. First, first of all, he was, you know, very handsome guy, very, you know, very rugged, handsome man. And he could recite poetry he would he, he would he could speak different languages while he was being arrested he was romancing for instance people like gloria <laughs> vanderbilt you know shelly winters betsy von furstenberg you know women that were that went to went, went to school with with uh, jacqueline bouvier you know women loved him he, he was a real charmer hmm. but he had this he had a mental illness you know and, and basically whether it was some sort of you know bipolar condition and and of course you know alcoholism you know, he hurt a lot of people, but at this, the same time, which made the, the book very interesting, which you kind of are able to kind of cut it in half here, is that when he came to Hollywood, when he returned to Hollywood in the mid 80s, he was hanging out in the same bars that he hung out in back in the 40s. These old dive bars off Hollywood Boulevard that are were now filled with youngsters and hipsters like, hey, let's go to Bordner's and hang on. Up. And then, wait a minute. Look, that's that old. That's that's Lawrence Tierney and Tierney befriended. <laughs> all these young guys who were, you know, they, they were in, just out of film school. They wanted to be directors. They wanted to be writers mm -hmm. and they wound up becoming directors and writers. Um, Tarantino was one of them. He was friends with these guys that Tierney had befriended and actually like moved in with. And because he would just, he, he'd be the guest that, that came and never left. Mm -hmm. And, and so these people now, they're in their fifties or sixties and they, they're telling, you know, they tell stories. Oh, you won't believe what Larry did, you know, because they were the young guys and he was the old guy. Two of the guys who did it were um, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. They are the, the guys who wrote the movie big eyes. And I mentioned that a uh, Margaret Keene died today. Uh, they wrote that the movie about her. Uh, they wrote Ed Wood. They produced the OJ Simpson uh, series that ran on FX. The people who oh, OJ Simpson. I like that one too. Yeah. Uh, when they they did Problem Child, they wrote Problem Child with Gilbert. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but when they were starting out, they would go. Uh, they would spend their afternoons in Larry Karaszewski's apartment writing. 
Mm-hmm. Who lived next door but Lawrence Tierney? <laughs> and they said, talk about, he said, it was like a living cartoon character. He was like uh, Kramer from Seinfeld because he would just burst in without knocking on the door. Okay, guys, let's party, whatever. And, and they just, they loved him. They said he was, you know, very intelligent, very, you know, very funny. But if you said the wrong thing, he'd suddenly look at you like he, <laughs> they thought that he was going to kill them. Hmm. <laughs> because he had, he just had that hair, that hair trigger. Um, but, you know, very, very interesting character and people still talk about him today. Mm-hmm. Now, he seemed to keep getting hired for acting gigs over the years. So was he a reliable actor despite his drinking and his uh, mental illness or? He, he always claimed that, no, he never drank on, you know, never drank on set, never drank when he when he when he um, was working. The, the big the big films were early in his career. He wound up, you know, after about five or five or six years. Uh, some some low budget things. Some of them, you know, became masterpieces. It became looked at as masterpieces, but they were low budget things. He got to the point where, by about 1955, he was on a, a very low budget film uh, called, you know, it, it was called like Panic. Mm. And a girl who worked at the popcorn stand at a theater in Wilshire Boulevard was the blonde in it, and mm. he played a cop. And this is kind of funny. There, there's a murder that takes place across from a bar. He plays a cop who was so drunk he can't remember if he killed her or not. And so I was like, oh, <laughs> that sounds like Larry. Um, it turns out that the, the girl who was, who was dishing out the popcorn was Jane Mansfield. Hmm. And she, while they couldn't sell this film, she went on Broadway and was in the Broadway show Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. And she became right. a star on Broadway and was about to make her big film debut in Hollywood with mm-hmm. The Girl Can't Help It, uh, mm-hmm. with... Um, with Tom Ewell, but these guys said, we, we got this movie, have our first movie. And they, re, they rushed released this movie with Lawrence Tierney and Jane Mansfield before the other one came out. And hmm. so things, things like that. So he, he was able to work. When he couldn't work, he would, um, he went to Europe, did a lot of voiceover work there, appeared in some films. And then when he was, when he was older, mm-hmm. people were like, that's young directors would be like, that's Lawrence Tierney. I want him in my movie. You know, give him a little, <laughs> let him play the bartender. Let him play, yeah. you know, let him play this. I mean, that's, that's what happened with Tarantino. Tarantino, mm-hmm. when he wrote the Reservoir Dogs script, dedicated it to like eight people who, you know, from Kurosawa to, you know, people that, that, that influenced him in his life and Lawrence Tierney. And he showed it to his friend, uh, Courtney Joyner, who was a screenwriter. And Courtney said, oh, you, you, uh, you dedicated this to Lawrence Tierney. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he said, yeah, Lawrence Tierney, what a guy. You know, he died, he got shot to death in a whorehouse in Mexico. And Courtney said, no, he, he lives behind the library. I, I see him every week. <laughs> <laughs> he said, what? And that's how, that's how Tarantino wound up meeting Lawrence Tierney. Wow. And drove, drove him crazy. <laughs> now, what, what caused you, I mean, you told me you saw that news article and stuff, but what, what caused you to want to write a book about him? I mean, just that or? Well, first, first of all, no one had ever written a book about him. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I said, wait, this is great. I love this story. There were little, there were little things like Lawrence Tierney um, when he when he worked at RKO. To enter the RKO studios, he had to walk through the door at 780 North Gower Street. Mm-hmm. That was the door I walked in every day when I worked at Hard Copy on the Paramount lot. Ah, the okay. was still there. I was like, oh wow, I got a little something happening here. But the best part was just that it was it was great fun researching. What I did was, and I did this very differently than I would usually research a book. I just started collecting every article from every website, from every magazine I could find about Lawrence Tierney 
on a week by week, month by month basis, starting from when he was born until you know, when stories started popping up in the early 1940s. And I transcribed them. And I just, I spent months just finding stories, transcribing them, putting them in, putting them in this file, got up to about uh, 500 single spaced pages of just articles of Lawrence Tierney. And then I started reading it like cold. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, he's made it to Hollywood. Oh, wow. He's in Dillinger. Oh, it's a hit. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, look what he did now. Oh, no. Oh, gee. Oh, oh, ouch. And then, wait, oh, it's another movie happening. And I was kind of reading it in real time saying, what's he going to do now? Oh, what's he? And, and of course, it, we, I found that it was like always one step forward, two steps backwards. He, wow. you know, he, he, he's at his lowest point and Cecil B. DeMille takes a liking to him and puts him in the movie The Greatest Show on Earth. Mm. He plays the bad guy in the greatest show on earth, right. like the mobster who's kind of running the cheats on, on the midway. And Cecil B. DeMille says to him, you know, Paramount loves you. Cecil B. DeMille got a huge kick out of him. He had, he had, he had, he had a, a trouble shooting a scene where they had to get eight of the stars, all, you know, James Stewart and Charlton Heston and everybody into this one shot. And Tyrion, he said, excuse me, let me show you what you should do. And told Cecil B. DeMille what to do. And he said, he did it. And he's, you know, he loved Lawrence Tierney and said, you're going to get, a multi-year contract at Paramount now. I love working with you so much. And then it hit the fan. He got arrested again and he, he beat somebody up and the, the, the went out, out the window. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, it was like that his entire career, his entire life. Wow. And no one felt no one felt sorry for him. That was the thing. There were there, yeah. there was there was no pity for this guy. Right. Uh, by the columnists, but, but they kept hiring him because because yeah. he was a good actor. I mean, it's amazing on two different levels. It's amazing that he kept getting hired. And yeah. it was also amazing that he kept getting in trouble. So it's yeah. like, you know. He, he, he just could, he couldn't, he couldn't help himself. There, there was a time when he was, when he was living on the streets of New York. He was living in abandoned buildings. You know, there are all, all kinds, there are all kinds of myths that went on that he had, that he had killed a woman in, the, in Europe and spent six years in a Spanish prison. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I spoke to the person that, 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 that he told the story to. And he said, yeah, I spent, I spent four years in a Spanish prison. Then I got out and I escaped and went over to Portugal, et cetera. And I said, I don't know how to tell you this, but like I've been doing this research on Lord's Tyranny. And there really isn't like more than like a two month period where he was off the map. I mean, you know, I could, I could like trace his whereabouts, you know, on, on a weekly basis. Yeah. So no, he, and if, if he spent six years in a Spanish prison, can you imagine the publicity that would make over here? Yeah. You know, you know, depend, even as washed up as he was. So that story didn't pan out, unfortunately. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah, but I mean, trouble. Yeah. So what was your source like newspapers.com to get all these different articles and everything mainly? Or? That, that was, newspaper.com helps a lot. Yeah. Uh, there, there's places where I was able to get, um, what do you call them? Fan magazines yeah. and, and, and other play, other resources, you know, archives of individual newspapers, just, you know, whatever out there. And then you have to, you know, you have, you have to kind of, dig in because everybody tells a different story you get the ap version then you get the upi version at the time then you get a, a version from the la from the los angeles paper and then you talk to somebody that was there one of the, the best interviews one of my favorite interviews was i believe it was 1958 lawrence tierney of course somebody's having a party in hollywood and and you know shortly after midnight boom 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 there's a bang on the door before they can answer it the door's kicked in and there's lawrence He's, he's, he's drunk out of his mind and he's looking for a girl named Mary. 
And so the, as the story went, uh, he Lawrence Tierney, as the way, the way the papers played it, he, 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 he knocked on the door, came in. A woman was there with a gentleman friend. He punched the gentleman friend in the face, tore down the curtains, ran out, and then was arrested. Hmm. Well, I found the guy that he punched. He was, he's, he's 92 years old. He's a British songwriter named Carol Coates. And he had written a couple of songs on Sinatra's Come Fly With Me album. And hmm. he's, he's up in Carmel, California now. And he's a he's, you know, very, very successful songwriter. And I found him. And because I, I said, I, I saw the age of the person that he punched. And I tried to figure it out. So I said, you know, tell me what happened. What happened here? And he said, well, he goes, well. I go, were you alone with, with this woman? And he came in. He goes, no, no. He goes, no, it was a party. It was, it was, it was a party. And uh, we're standing there. And all of a sudden, the, the door bursts open. And this guy comes in. And he's a little sweaty and he's looking around and he looks at me and he goes, you goddamn limey, punch me in the face. And, and I go, <laughs> what? And, and this is, this, I've seen, I've seen pictures of this gentleman. He's not a big guy. You know, he's a little songwriter. He's an artist. And, uh, and I said, well, did you punch him back? He said, well, well no, he, he, he knocked out my tooth. I was on the floor trying to find my tooth. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the sad part was, he said, you know, I was just getting started in Hollywood at the time. I had a song in a movie called Blue Denim that was that had just come out. Hmm. And uh, I was going to a lot of Hollywood parties, you know, to promote myself. I had to go to a lot of parties. And he said, for the next year, I was, I was totally frightened that he'd show up at one of these parties and recognize me and, and hit me again. And, you know, and he goes, I, had to get, I had to get a fake tooth, et cetera. But, you know, he never, he never forgot it. There were victims oh. there. There were victims, wow. yeah. Uh, now Lawrence never got married, but didn't he father three children or something like that? that he, right? Lawrence had had a daughter. There, there's a very interesting um, part of the book. I, I, I was able to 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 speak and got some good help with members of Lawrence Tierney's family. Um, not to give away too much of the book, but he he um, he had a daughter who wound up being raised by his brother and his wife as their daughter. So as, as, his, as his nephew said, it was sort of a Chinatown situation there. My sister's my niece, my uncle's my father's my uncle, et cetera. <laughs> um, and he, he didn't have much of a relationship with her. He did in, in once she grew up and in his later years, he had a sort of a, a very um, friendly relationship with her, not any, any kind of you know, loving daddy relationship, but yeah. His, fa- his family took a lot of the brunt of his you know, illness and his rages. You know, the family was estranged from him for a long time. He had two brothers who came out to Hollywood and mm-hmm. became actors. One of them became a very successful, famous actor named Scott Brady. Mm-hmm. Um, Brady was in um, movies like, uh, he was in a lot of movies with Joan Crawford, did a lot of Westerns. He had his own TV show called Shotgun Slade. Mm-hmm. Uh, he changed his name to Scott Brady mm-hmm. because at the time his agents basically said, you don't want your name to be tyranny as you're starting here. You don't want people to know that you're related to, to Lawrence Tierney. <laughs> but he did, you know, but when people did ask him, he he always stuck up for him and said, My brother's the one who got me my start in this. My brother's the one who, if my brother wasn't here, I would have never been able to make it in Hollywood. And he's a good brother. Uh, mm-hmm. they had a fight. They were they were strange for about 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And everybody you contacted for the most part was willing to talk to you and give stories and everything like that. Or did you get any pushback or Yes, I got to tell you, Lawrence Tierney has been dead for 20 years. Right. I think a little, he died in, he died, he died in I think, 2001, 2002. Um, a lot of these things happened 30 years ago. And people like Quentin Tarantino are still traumatized 
by their experiences with <laughs> wow. Lawrence Tierney. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld is still traumatized by his by his um, experience with Lawrence Tierney. Didn't want to talk. I, you wow. know, I spoke to you know Michael Madsen, who was uh, in the cast of Reservoir Dogs, and and people who were with Tierney when he did when he did Seinfeld. I've mentioned Seinfeld. He there's an episode called The Jacket. Mm -hmm. uh, Seinfeld. It was where uh, he played Tierney played Elaine's father, uh, mm -hmm. a, a former military man and author named Alton Bennis. And the whole idea was that he was he had to go out and have dinner with Jerry uh, and Jason Alexander, and he scared the hell out of both of them. He was a very scary character, mm -hmm. and he was a very funny, very you know he played it very uh, down down the middle and. Uh, very deadpan and was hilarious. Yeah, and they, they loved him, and they said, "We got, you know, we're going to bring this guy back. We're going to make him a recurring character. He's going to play Elaine's father." Mm -hmm. Almost. <laughs> they're on the set. They're on the apartment set, of, and they're rehearsing a scene, and they're, they're all speak talking about the next scene. They look over and they see Tierney over by the kitchen area, take a butcher knife out of the the the, the butcher block on the counter, stick it in his coat, and. <laughs> Louis Dreyfus says, Jason, I don't know, do you see that? And the director goes, do you, do you see that? And they're like, uh -huh. uh, he, he just, he just, I just stole the butcher knife. And uh, they're like, oh, I'm not going to say anything. And Larry David says, I don't want to say anything. Jerry Seinfeld looks over, walks over to him. Hey, Larry, what's with the knife? And Tierney's caught. Blushes, turns red and says, oh, well, oh, you, you know, just... Just thought I'd have it in case I have to stab you. <laughs> and did the psycho thing over Jerry, over Jerry's head in front of everyone. And they all said, get him out of here. <laughs> Do not bring him back. And that, yes, that's how he lost out on his recurring part in Seinfeld. Mm. Wow. He thought he was being funny. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't get, he did not get the, the, the humor of Seinfeld. He's like, you know, I've worked with Jack Benny. I've worked with some of the greats. This isn't funny. What, 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 what? I don't get that he didn't get the Seinfeld at all. <laughs> <laughs> mm. wow. how did this guy get a show <laughs> <laughs> show about nothing there you go um, <laughs> um before i go on to your shemp book i want to ask about some of the different tv shows you worked on you 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 mentioned a couple of them sure. um how how did you get involved with some of these people i mean it's like I, you can give me the full titles again but i mean we mentioned them kind of at the top like Joe Rogan, Jesse Ventura, Gene Simmons. I mean, these are all kind of like extreme personalities. It seems like, wow, you know, do you get attracted <laughs> to that or they get attracted to you or? <laughs> well, let's see. I, you know, I, I start, I, I came out of news, then went over to, you know, the tabloid television, which was reality, not news, but it was still like reality stuff. So a lot of the TV I did was like documentary television. I worked for court TV, did a lot of things for court TV. Uh, worked for a show called called Mugshots, where you know we do a story on the Green River Killer or John Gotti, uh, things things like that. Where you would take you take the mugshot of someone who has been arrested. Let's say it's, it was you know P Diddy, and then you would do the whole story of what was behind that mugshot, what led up to his crimes, etc. These are one hour documentary shows on on Court TV. I wound up selling a, a couple of series. I had my own production company with a guy named Brad Hudson. Brett was a member of the Hudson Brothers back in the 70s. I remember the Hudson Brothers yeah, television yeah. show in the, the pop group. Um, Brett and I were partners for about 10 years, and we, we did a lot of um, we, uh, television series and specials together. Uh, we sold a show called The Secret History of Rock and Roll to Court TV. And it was basically, you know, the crimes of rock and roll, the how 
you know, Guns N' Roses uh, kicked out their drummer by making him sign a contract, you know, that, that was able to throw him out of the band because, you know, amid all those drugs, he did too many drugs. He did, he did <laughs> more drugs than, than Axl Rose, apparently, so they got rid of him. You know, what, was, what uh, Phil Spector did to, to um, Ronnie Spector, et cetera. And so you're looking for a host for the show and the network and we go to, you go to the, you go to the agencies and um, they say, well, these are guys that would like to would be willing to host the show. The names that you wouldn't expect that are, you know, are going to host. And Gene Simmons was one of them. And I'm like, yeah, let's use Gene Simmons. And this was before Gene really came back and did shows like the reality show he did with his family. And he did yeah. a thing at a, at a girl's school or something. So Gene was just getting started and he comes up and, you know, the first thing he says is, you know, why do men die before their wives? Because they want to. It's like, this guy's like a Borscht Belt comic. And <laughs> that's all he was doing all the time. And then he would say the most incredibly sexist things and, you, yeah. know, you know, marriage and all this and that. And I said, you know, like, you know, Gene, you know, I always thought that the kiss was started by Peter Chris because that's what he called the drummer. No way. They had nothing. It was me and Paul Stanley all the way. You know, these other two guys say, would you like fries with that order? You know, he, he was just, it was all comedy. And so I said, we got we to do a show with Gene Simmons. So we went out and pitched a show called Sex with Gene Simmons. And it was going to be a talk show, sort of like Playboy After Dark with you, Hefner. And Gene Simmons would be the host and he would be able to you know, interview people and talk and this and that. And we got an incredible um, response. Our agent brought it out. We got an incredible response from all these networks. Well, as it turned out, these guys, again, this was about the year around 2000. They had no intention of doing a talk show or a show with Gene Simmons, but they all wanted to meet him. And so we'd, be, we'd show up at, at, like, at the USA Network. We'd be here with, with like, you know, Doug Herzog, the head, of, the head of USA. And the, the hallways were filled with people that worked there holding like, you know, albums and, and, and Gene Simmons dolls. They wanted autographed. And you get in there and they'd say, Gene, did you really have sex with 2000 women? Oh yes, let me tell you. And he would just tell these stories and they go, oh, Gene, here, here's my cell phone, please. You gotta, you gotta leave a message, leave a message for my friend. And I'm sitting there, Brett and I are sitting there going, they're not, they're not gonna sell, <laughs> they don't want the show, they just wanna meet Gene Simmons. And so we never, we never sold that show. Wow. But that's, but by doing that, I mean, we did um, a, a series for the old Bravo network called All the President's Movies. And it was the history of the White House screening room. We had somebody had brought us the the White House projectionist from Truman through Reagan. He's the guy who, who was the projectionist for every movie that was shown in the White House, and he kept notes of every screening and who was in every screening. Huh. So we were able to like find out what was Nixon and Kissinger watching the night they invite they invaded Cambodia. Who were the mystery women that, J that JFK was watching Espresso Bongo with while Jackie was, you know, was, was, in, was in Paris? That, that sort of thing. So we had an incredible uh, show. And that, that one, we talked to everybody from Robert Duvall to James Earl Jones to uh, Cliff Robertson. And the host for that was, was Martin Sheen, who at the time, I think, was playing the president on the, on the West Wing. Yeah. And so he, he was our narrator for that. So, because, we again, you go to the agency, you say, oh, Martin Sheen would love to host something like that. So, so we're able to... To, to work with them in an interesting amount of characters, which led to Jesse Ventura and conspiracy <laughs> theory with Jesse Ventura. <laughs> there came a time in television where the idea was to do a TV show with a celebrity about what their passion was. Like, yeah. what, what, like what's, what's your passion? And so they brought me in to do a show with Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. <laughs> and 
Tommy Lee's passion were, were strange cults because his father was a, um, a member of the um, Masons. And there was one line in his book where it said, you know, it may have been one of the chapters that was narrated by his penis, I guess that was his book that he had where it was alternating chapters. And, and it said, uh, you know, my dad was a Mason and he'd come home and I'd ask him what he did and he would never tell me, it was a mystery. So they were like, that's it. Tommy Lee's gonna chase down cults around the world. And they brought me in to be, to be, to be the producer of it. And I met with Tommy Lee and, and his agent, there was his manager at the time. And I was like, so Tommy, how are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm fine. He was like, it's like a 12 year old. <laughs> it's like, wow. you know, are you, he was just like a kid. And I'm like, so you, are you, you're really into this? And this is all about you. He goes, I guess so, <laughs> I guess. And his, and his manager's like, yes. And I should be on the show with him because Tommy's in it. And all right, we get it. But <laughs> I ended up not doing that show. but wound up uh, brought in to, to help um, reviving it on the air the show Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura, because Jesse Ventura was into conspiracies. He, he was always, um, the thing that got him going was the Kennedy assassination. Mm -hmm. that, he was just obsessed with the Kennedy assassination. Uh, and, and again, he, and Jesse really went out there and Jesse was, was, was quite a character. I mean, he, he was a politician. He, the one thing about Jesse was that he was, he'd be able to stay on point. Uh, he would do an interview on something and earlier that day you'd say jesse would say you know i believe there should be a separation of church and state you know they sh churches should be taxed you know they should get taxes on churches and then he would go on on larry king that night and they would larry say oh so jesse what do you think about marijuana and he'd say i think churches should be taxed and he would jesse would just stick to whatever he was talking about hmm. but he also wouldn't would never do anything that he didn't believe wouldn't read anything he didn't believe wouldn't say anything on camera that he didn't believe hmm. which it was frustrating sometimes yeah <laughs> when you know he, he had a, he had an outfit that he would wear it would, it would be a, a black t-shirt a black leather coat and you know it'd be jesse ventura and he he was forced to do an interview that he didn't want to do on a story he didn't believe so he wore a, a pink checked jacket instead <laughs> and, a, and a yellow t-shirt to prove that he didn't want to be there but uh, a great great guy he was just, just he was very fun to work with hmm, i think we did two, three, three seasons of that show it's just extreme personalities that's how i kind of see them all you know yeah. so you know i mean I, but i guess that's what makes a good celebrity i mean it's like they are memorable for at least themselves if not for what they've done so you know yeah and that's, that's also what what makes a good television personality are the ones yeah. who really can pop on camera the thing with jesse is he would he turn it on when you needed him to turn it on in an interview he'd, he'd get tough or he'd be tough on camera yeah, yeah. I, I the same people that brought jesse ventura to to the to the network for the people who discovered john taffer the guy who does bar rescue mm -hmm. and i've never seen that show it, that guy taffer just you know screams and throws things and yells and he, he really brings it on on camera and that's sort of you know that's what you're right. always looking for something that really pops and, Je and jesse did i think now he's doing a he was doing a. He, i was with him when he didn't want to have to go through um the tsa checkpoint uh, at airports <laughs> Yeah. Basically, because I think he had two titanium, he had two hips and would always go off, the, the, the alarm would go off. And he said, you know, I'm, I was governor. And I, it said that I am the honorable Jesse Ventura. So if I'm honorable, why do I have to go through this metal detector? I'm not going through it. And he, he refused to fly commercial. Now he refused, and he, and he made a public statement about this, made a public stand 
-hmm. in between the second and third season of the television show. So we find out as we're, as we're preparing, oh, by the way, Jesse's not flying commercial. It's like, what? We, we have to go all over the country to shoot this show. What do you mean he's not going to fly commercial? And he's like, well, he, 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 he won't do it. Uh, can we, uh, we're not going to get a private plane. You know, so we, we, we'll, we'll get him a, a, a bus. How's that? Or, or an RV. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So the first, the first thing he had to do was go from Minnesota to Chicago. And then he's going to take a train to get to New York, et cetera. And so we had a, um, a special, you know, bus to, to pick him up. Um, we get there. It, it, it was a Saturday morning. I get a call at about five o'clock in the morning. Uh, he's in Minnesota. He's refusing to get on the bus. Why? Because they they sent a stripper bus, you know, with, with, the, with the pink flashing lights and a disco ball and a and a pole. They sent a party. They got a party bus. They didn't get like a regular, regular sort of camper. And so Jesse would have to have to go from Minneapolis to Chicago in this in this you know stripper bus. Uh, but he liked the driver. He was salt of the earth. He liked the guy who was driving. I forget. I'll, I'll I'll do it. So he drove. To, he, he went to Chicago with that bus. <laughs> then later he, he was able to use his own his own camper and his own his own thing. And he drove around in that. So that was that was better. Now, one thing I, I hope you did this because I, I I read a little bit about your biography and everything and looked on your website and everything. It's like uh, I'm a huge Monty Python fan, and I didn't know you did a documentary on Neil Innes called The Seventh Python. How did that one come about? Now I have to go see it because I go. I thought I've seen everything Monty Python related, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> the Seventh Python. I I grew up. I was a, I was a great fan of Monty Python, you know, the time when, when it first came over here in America, I was probably, you know, in high school, going into college, you know, Monty Python was everything, you know, when they, they had broken up, got back together, I remember they had um, the Holy Grail came on, they came to New York, and they did, you know, they, they showed up, and they did, they, they, they did tours, etc. I was totally into, into um, Monty Python. And then Neil Innes, of course, who did music and did bits for, for Monty Python, also did the Ruddles. Yes. It was the parody group of the Beatles. Um, it, it, Lauren Michaels produced a one-hour special on NBC. George Harris was in it. Belushi was in it. Um, the Monty Python people were in it. And I, I believe it was, it was the lowest rated show of the week yeah. uh, when, when it aired. But the Ruddles, the album came out. And I was one of the people who felt that the Ruddles songs were just as good as the Beatles songs. The Piggy in the middle. and all, I thought they were, they were terrific. So anyway... I talked about the show Mugshots. I'm working for Court TV. Um, the producer of Mugshots is doing a documentary on the life and death of John Lennon. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was out to produce the life and death of John Lennon. I went to England and I went, I traced his life in England to all the, all the major spots from, you know, from where he was born in Liverpool to, you know, Strawberry Fields to Abbey Road Studios to the apartment that he, that he lived in, et cetera. And then when all that was done, I had to go to New York and trace his last days in New York, where I interviewed the surgeon who massaged his heart, uh, you know, after he was shot. But anyway, as we're interviewing people, we, we interviewed you know, people that were friends with, with, uh, with Lennon when he was a kid, the DJ that did one of his last interviews. Uh, we interviewed the, the, the sound engineer for the White Album. And I said, I got to get the guy who interviewed, uh, the guy who played the Lennon character, the Ruddles, the Alinus played Ron Nasty. Yeah. So I've got, I've got to interview him. So we went over and we interviewed Neil Innes. Mm -hmm. He was very, he was, he was very you know, suspicious 
don't, don't trust journalists too much in that. But it was, was, it was very nice, et cetera. And, I, and the last thing we said was, you know, what, you know, what did John Lennon, what did you learn from John Lennon in the end, et cetera? And he said, and I, he told what, what, what Lennon had, 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 had taught him, you know, he had met Lennon here and there. And he was actually, he was George Har one of George Harrison's best friends, Neil Linus, Neil Linus was. And he said, he, he said, uh, John Lennon taught me never trust a journalist. <laughs> so I put that, me, we put that quote in the documentary. Mm -hmm. And 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 he and he loved it. Hmm. So just move move forward a bit. The way I got in touch with him was there was a Neil Innes website back in the early two thousands. It was um, it had all of his lyrics, all of his videos. It was this it was a world, you know. And this this was while the internet was still kind of you know coming into play and getting into shape. And these two women from Los Angeles who were ultra Monty Python Neil Innes fans that started this. And Neil didn't know about it. They didn't. They didn't tell him about it. Uh, he found out about it, and he began. He began to talk with them and you know correspond, etc. And he was coming to Los Angeles in two thousand and three, I believe. And they said, "Let's we're, we're going to book some shows for you with a band made up of your fans who are out here." So Neil came over, and I got in touch with him. I said, "This is great." You know, I, I was my our company with Brett. We were shooting uh, a couple of television series, and we had camera crews. And we said, "Let's go. Let's shoot a documentary on you." And and Neil, because I had put in the line, "Don't trust journalists." He loved that, and he agreed to do it. And so we shot the sh we shot the shows in Hollywood. Um, he did a show with the band, and then he did a, another solo show where Eric Idle came on, and he did, he did some things with Eric Idle. We followed him to a, a, a radio interview at a breakfast with the Beatles show, did long interviews with him, took him places, et cetera. Um, shot some kind of Python-esque material with him. And then ran out of money and put all the tapes in a box for five years. Hmm. Because we, you know, it was, again, it was a documentary. We couldn't get it, we couldn't get it done, et cetera. Um, we raised the money five years later, did some more interviews. I mean, originally, for instance, to show how, how well-liked and loved Neil Innes was. Neil Innes, by the way, was one of the sweetest, nicest mm -hmm. guys in show business. The other nicest guy is Michael Palin from Monty Python. Mm. And Michael Palin happened to be promoting one of his books. Mm -hmm. And we got in touch with him and they said, uh, we, I saw they were doing a signing in Beverly Hills and called him and, and called his people and said, can you, know, can you do an interview with us about Neil Innes? And they're like, well, no, he's on a, he's on a book tour. Uh, he can't do it. And he called mm -hmm. and said, all right, look, I, where are you? I'll come, I'll come down and do it in the morning. And he did it. <clears throat> and so we had, to we had an interview with him. We interviewed um, John Cleese. We, we interviewed Idol. We interviewed everybody in Python except for Terry Gilliam, who we, we just, we, we crossed, we, 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 there, there, were, there, were, there were cross signals there and we missed him. Mm -hmm. we, um, Terry Jones, we went to Terry Jones's house and, and, and spoke with him. But anyway, we did a, did a nice piece on, on Neil. Finally got it together. Um, showed it at a bunch of Beatles fan fests in uh, in Chicago and in, in New Jersey and I think in Las Vegas, um, and so it started circulating among among the, the Beatles fans. We entered in a few film festivals. Neil entered it in film festival in Britain. It won a film festival in Perth, Australia, etc. And we got a, a distribution deal to distribute the film. Mm -hmm. And they said, all we have to do now is clear the music. Mm. What happened was when the Ruddles album came out, the Beatles lawyers sued Neil Innes uh, 
for you know for copyright infringement you know for plagiarism it, was, it wasn't it was it was parody etc but yeah. they gave in and every every uh, ruddle song is credited to neil Innes, paul mccartney and john lennon yeah and we couldn't afford the music <laughs> so it's it sat it just the, 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 the film has sat out there now since about 2008 um, so somebody put it on youtube we didn't know, but it's, oh, it's on okay. YouTube. I think it was—I think it was somebody you know who had something to do with one of one of the either film festivals or or, or Beatle Fests who made a copy or or kept the 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 the, the DVD and put it on on YouTube. Hmm. So it's not officially released then. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, never was never was officially released. No, it was you know it was shown. It okay, made the film so that's why I haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when was it supposed to come again? Let's assume you got all the clearances. When would it have supposed to have come out then? It would have been out by 2010, okay. I would think, by the way it was going. I mean, we, 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 it was one of these things. We, we did kind of like the, um, you know, the roadshow tour where we, we, we did a theater in um, outside Chicago where Tim Kazarinsky, the ex-Saturday Night Live performer, uh, hosted and you know, interviewed Neil. Neil performed. We showed the film, uh, did that sort of thing. We, we did that at the, uh, in Hollywood at the Egyptian Theater as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Neil performed. We showed the film. It was part of a, a rock and roll film festival that was mm-hmm. there. So yeah, so it did the festival circuit, and then sat there and maybe said then. And then Neil passed away a couple of years ago, which was right. sad. He was just dropped. He just you know, just dropped dead, as they say, not on stage. <laughs> um, Nobody's perfect. He is, out of all the people we've talked about, he is one person I actually saw and met about ten years ago. He performed in San Francisco when I was still living mm-hmm. down there. And um, I didn't know about your documentary. I probably might have asked about it, but I did uh, ask about Rutland Weekend Television. I asked about Magical Mystery Tour and just a few other things, you know, and just give his thoughts. You know, I really did want Rutland Weekend Television to come out. And he said the same thing. Basically, it's music rights that's all tied up, you know. And yeah, yeah. Uh, But I did manage to get all the episodes anyway, because they all ended up at U- on YouTube at some point. And I downloaded them before they took them off. So Right, exactly. I, yeah, I do have them. You have to do so, but yeah, they're kind of they're kind of uneven, but I mean, it had one episode that has George Harrison on it. What, that's where the Ruddles first appeared, and all sorts yep. of things. So you know, it's worth but, seeing for that. You know, <laughs> and, that, and that was another thing with with Neil. You know, part of the 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 theme of, of the movie was was Neil's real hatred of fame. He did never wanted to be famous, and he was always on, on alongside of it. I mean, he's he's in the Bonzos, and the Bonzo do that dog band, and he's and. You know, he's in Magical Mystery Tour. Right. He he makes the Bonzos make their first single, and Paul McCartney produces it. Right. And they refuse to let Paul McCartney put his name on the on this the single. Or you know, the, we're going to call you Apollo C. Vermouth. You're not right. going. Nobody can know this. You know, and he's and he's he works with you know with George Harrison, and he he directed a couple of videos for George Harrison's when George Harrison made his comeback toward the end, and he was always right alongside very famous people. He was sort of like the most famous person you've never heard of. One thing we did in the, in the documentary also was I went on Hollywood Boulevard and went to Windsor Castle and in, in London and showed his pictures. Do you know who this guy is? And got some very funny responses of who <laughs> they thought the guy could possibly be. <laughs> wow. No, I, I've known about him uh, probably since Holy Grail. That's probably the first, you know, that yeah. I saw him. And then... Uh, uh probably was yeah the saturday night live episode that had uh you know the ruddles on it and then he actually performed with eric idol on a later saturday night live so yeah. you know slowly over time i go oh this is a guy to be reckoned with you know he's not 
part of the Pythons, but he's around. <laughs> and yeah. same thing with the Beatles. And it's always it is kind of always weird. I don't know if he uh, purposely did that or just was bad luck that he never got successful and he's around all these successful people. Yeah. Uh, he no, he deliberately he deliberately you know, had he an sabotaged his career. Okay. That was the thing, you know. And you know, he, he talked to his, his wife, and who sort of, you know, she she always stuck with him, you know, through all these. I think he was married for fifty years. Wonderful, wonderful woman, and she would be like, yeah, he just he said that that's he goes that's one reason why George Harrison liked him so much because mm-hmm. he wasn't somebody who would look at him and go, oh, it's George Harrison. He's just like, oh, it's just another bloke. Mm-hmm. A great, great guy, right? That was a big loss for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was a very uh, charming person to meet, and he was very cordial. Yeah. And he talked to a friend of mine, and I went, and you know, we just sat there and just and it, uh, everybody else they they kind of went to hear him sing, and then they left. And I was right. just enthralled just talk to him because he allowed us to go up and talk to him. So I said, I'm going to talk to him. So he loves that. He he was like the, like the world's oldest graduate student. He just he just loved to sit and talk about about mm-hmm. politics and about words. His, one of his his good two of his best friends here in in Los Angeles that one of them was in the film was Emo Phillips, the comedian, oh, yeah. and Weird Al. They both they they all got they all got along very well. Right. I'm going to have to find that at some point. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> excuse me. Um, well, I can't end the show without you giving a little preview, if you can, of your next book project, which is what got me to pay attention to you in the first place. Exactly right. Is uh, Shemp, you know, and we can have you back on the show. We could talk all Shemp, but um, uh, obviously there's never been an autobiography or a biography of just Shemp. Right. Uh, so it's a natural for someone to do one. I think Joe Dorita is the only other one, but nobody yeah. seems to care. <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, so why Shemp? And is there any information is there to get out there about him other than what's on film? Well, there's a. Tr- I think there's a, a tremendous story. Um, my literary my literary agent is a guy named Lee Sobel, and Lee and I hit it off. Lee is totally into pop culture and rock and roll and, you know, comedians and comes up with these ideas and, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think? You know, I don't know if it's for me. Well, this, this seems like quite, quite an interesting idea. He came up with Shemp and he said, you know, there's never been a book about Shemp Howard. So you go, okay, Shemp Howard, Three Stooges, we get it. But then you look at the story of Shemp Howard and it is an incredible story of a man with many phobias, many unreasonable fears, a man who was working, you know, with his brother uh, as a, in the original Stooges, before they were called the Three Stooges, he was one of the original Stooges with, with Ted Healy. And when it was, it was Mo Howard, it was Larry Fine, and it was Shemp Howard. At the, the, he did, I believe, one film with Healy yeah. and then left, left. Yeah. Right when they were, you know, they were really about to hit it. He left and went out on his own. And the career that he had over the next 14 years was pretty good. I mean, he was he was he was a, a comic actor who with a lot more sensitivity than the other Stooges had. Uh, a lot more, I think, range, which mm-hmm. we will look into. And a very interesting life in that when, when he when he came out to Hollywood with his wife, with, with his kids, 
it was a great story. I mean, he did, he, again, he spent 14 years on his own and only came back to the Stooges when his younger brother had a stroke, when Curly had a stroke. And he came in basically to save the day and fulfill the contract and wound up staying yeah. and continued as a Stooge after his death. Right. You know, it's fixed, dude. It's a fake show. Another excuse story. Me. Yeah. And then, you know, but it all gets down to, I mean, the original title that I had was The Face of Film Comedy, because it's, you know, Frank Sinatra Jr. does a song, That Face, that face, that fabulous face. That, you, know, you can put on a little a wig and be Mo. You can you can shave your head and go, me, 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 and you, and you can be, you, you can be curly. You can frizz out your hair and be Larry. But you can't have a face like Shemp. I mean, 1942, I believe it was. Yeah. He was voted the ugliest man in Hollywood. That sounds right. <laughs> I have the story. There's, there's a great story. There's, there's the official story of, you know, it was a publicity stunt, of course, but a lot of you know, actresses were, were involved in it and, and people came in when they voted. And he's very proud of being the ugliest man in Hollywood. Yeah. But there are artists now, like the one person who was probably more excited about this than, um, than anyone is Drew Friedman. The Vermeer of the, the Catskills, the, <laughs> yep. the, the great, the great. I have a lot, a lot of Drew Friedman art here, and Drew is just can't wait to talk about Shemp because Shemp has been an inspiration to him. I, I've got some early work. There's, there's one work that Drew Friedman has of a bunch of people on a subway, and there's Wayne Newton, and then there's Joe Franklin, and there's Bob Hope. And there's Shemp in the back. Yep. <laughs> we made the cover, Shemp, that his drawing of Shemp, as it were, uh, made the cover of one of his collections of artwork. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, any similarity to something, people living or dead, yes. it's nearly coincidental yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Um, so well, that's, Shemp, that's, Shemp is my favorite. That's why I was like attracted to that. Uh, Brideless Groom is my favorite uh, Three Stooges short, you know, mm -hmm. especially the. And we're talking about ugly, you know. There's that one scene where his face is mashed against the telephone booth. Because right. <laughs> you want, and Larry says, uh, "Who am I getting?" Uh, uh, the lady asks, "Who am I getting married to?" And she, he points to him, and it's all mashed in the face, you know. Um, but and it's the cousin Basil part that I love with Christine McIntyre whacking the crap out of him. So you know, <laughs> anyway. But this so, this was great stuff like the 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 Abbott and Costello movies that he did in you know, Africa, Africa Screams, Screams yeah. Bank Dick and and he he actually he was in James Stewart's first movie you mm -hmm. probably know that when was, I think James Stewart was in it was a I don't know if it was an Arbuckle film but it was one of the, one of those films that he made during that period the research is just beginning on this but it's going to yeah. be a and I, I did a book on Lawrence Tierney I've got a book we're doing on Marlon Brando okay. uh, we're coming up to the centenary of Brando's um, birth and the 20th anniversary of his death. And it's not a biography, but it's a book on the influence that Marlon Brando, the continue, continuing influence that he has on popular culture mm -hmm. um, from Elvis to the Beatles to, mm -hmm. you know, to fashion. You know, the Beatles, going back to that, they say, some people say, and Paul McCartney has said it, were inspired, the name was inspired by Marlon Brando in the movie, The Wild One. Yeah. Well, they show that clip in the Beatles anthology. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everybody loves you. The Beatles love everybody you. The Beatles you know? love you. Yeah. Yeah. So. And so. Um. And so. Yeah. So that's we're, we're working on that. And I figured, you know, Lawrence Tierney, Marlon Brando, who else? Who else is there? But Shemp. Shemp. <laughs> what a combination. <laughs> Moving up the in Trinity, the world. <laughs> the Hollywood Trinity. <laughs> Who's next? Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs>
Anyway. Right. Oh, poor guy, right. Gilbert. It's terrific. <laughs> All yeah. right. Well, oh, by the way, I was going to say yeah. the Stooges yeah. were in, uh, if you remember, they were in the show won't go on. Um, the the Stooges were in, it was October 21st, 1913. Mm-hmm. And it was the six diving bells in vaudeville. These were six young women in bathing suits who would stand around a pool. They would be 30 feet above the ground on a pool on little diving boards, the curtains would open and they would bing and spring into the water. And that's how the show would start. Mm-hmm. Um, they were backstage, they were ready to go. These diving boards were very, very um, uh, springy. And if you, if, if, if you hit it the wrong part, it'll just launch you up into the air. Uh, poor Gladys Kelly slipped, was launched up, hit her head on the side of the, of, of the, of the pool, hit the stage, fell 30 feet. They brought her away. She died in the hospital, which left only five diving bells for five diving women. But actually, there were only three diving women because two of the diving bells were Ted Healy and Mo Howard. As teenagers, they were part of this female group. Interesting. And so they made the show, they made the show won't go on. Wow. Very cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, you have yourself you need a book about yourself but anyway because you oh, i did a, I, I had one already here it's called what, what is your own book let's see uh, tabloid oh, tabloid. Baby, no 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 about your life that's about your life then or it's about my life oh, okay i haven't even asked about that but, okay okay it's, it's, it's actually um what is it it's, it's it's how to try in television without really succeeding i think that's, that's how it works okay <laughs> I have to read that one too. I mean, it's like, wow! Now that I know more about you, I was like, oh, I got to read all this stuff. So anyway, that's the book that almost ended that ended my career in my literary career before it started. So there you go. <laughs> all right. Well, um, this is the time of the show. It's like the end of the show, and I just have you promote whatever you'd like to promote. How people can get in touch with you, websites. If you're doing any personal appearances, where can they find your books? Things like that. The book is called Lawrence Tierney. This is the, the galley copy. It'll be a, a hardcover. Lawrence Tierney, Hollywood's real-life tough guy. Uh, it is available now uh, for pre-order at Amazon. We like to get those pre-orders up there, you know, so people can, so they can print more copies, knowing that people are interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gotten some really good advanced praise from people in, in, the, in the film noir community and film noir writers and, and, and authors and Actually, got some quotes from uh, Raquel Vasquez, who was Hollywood's queen of bail. She's the one female bail bondsman, and she said, "I would love to have had Tierney as a customer because uh, <laughs> yeah, be, we could get money from him every week." And uh, um, LawrenceTierneyBook.com is the website, or BertKerns.com, but you can find it on Amazon. And it always, if you want to find out how people, you know, one of the nice things about the lockdown, the pandemic was that for about two years, for the most part, people stopped dying on stage. Hmm. And that's how we knew that we were into a recovery and that the world was opening up again when the story started again. And so uh, we're keeping track of that at the show won't go on.com. And if you can't remember that, it's dietonstage.com. Um, <laughs> I hope to be doing appearances. We're planning to do appearances um, in probably you know, in the fall. The, books, the book is officially published in November. Okay. So it'll be around that time, uh, in the fall, around Christmas time, and then in, into 2023. But I'll be out there. I'm always out there. I'm on, and, join, and if you're on Facebook, join the Lawrence Tierney group and the Shemp group, right? Shemp group, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope, I, I hope we can talk again when the, when the Shemp book is together. We'll have some fun with that for sure. 
All right. Uh, I know Shemp and Marlon Brando are a big thing on your plate, but anything else you're working on or no, not at the moment? Or it's too hush-hush under wraps. <laughs> I, am helping my, I am helping my um, co-author, Jeff Abraham, from The Show Won't Go On. <laughs> Jeff has been working for many years on the first authorized biography of the Ritz brothers. And I'm helping, I'm working with Jeff on that. I'm helping Jeff with that. And we've got some, there's always things in the pipeline. I'm working on television documentaries. I've been working on a, a television show here called Who Do You Believe? It's a show on ABC um, where they take two sides of a, of a crime or two sides of a story and both people tell their sides of the story. They have to decide who to believe. I think the episodes I've been, I've been working on are airing this month. And, you know, always you know, trying to pay the rent, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you, Bert Kearns, for being my special guest. Obviously, I'm having my dog uh, <laughs> infiltrate here at the bottom Very of the Very well behaved, here. yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, oh, not now. <laughs> there you go. That's Good. Me, yeah. Anyway, um, but it was a pleasure having you on the show and hope to have you on again when Shemp is ready or even if Marlon Brando is ready. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot. All right. And cool. this is Mark Arnold for another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Bert Kearns, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 179 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.